this is the last chance. Like we had never, we had not gotten a prototype that that fit perfectly on the back of a MacBook yet and had bricks stick to it properly. So the entire company is sitting there on some pallets in the warehouse and in our complete future is sort of just like resting there. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead. And I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. And in today's episode, I interview Brett Miller, who is the founder of BrickBook, and very soon to be the founder of BrickTile that will be coming out in about another month or two. Really quickly, before I tell you about this episode, just wanted to let you know that as of today's date, the release date of this episode, September 19th, there are two days left to enter the Half Hour Intern Contest for reviews on iTunes. So all you need to do to enter the contest is leave a review for Half Hour Intern on iTunes. You will then be entered to win one of three really cool uh camping like outdoor recreation prizes then i will be raffling away a or i guess picking out a fourth winner um who just leaves the most creative or the most fun review and i'll be giving that person a half hour intern t-shirt so we have four winners total so far there have been 10 of you guys that have left reviews so there is still a really good chance to win something if you just go on over to itunes and leave a review for half hour intern so um again contest ends on wednesday september 21st that evening i will be raffling away the prizes and um and on thursday's episode this week the episode on thursday september 22nd i will be announcing who the winners of the contest are. So on to today's episode. Um, As I said, I interviewed Brett Miller, who is the founder of a product called BrickBook and soon to be BrickTile, which BrickBook uh, are these really cool MacBook cases for your laptop um, that that allow you to basically put these proprietary little like Legos and on your laptop case and kind of design your own MacBook case any way that you want with little Legos. So um, they have their own kind of pre-made designs that they can uh, that you can kind of like follow and, and design something like that, or you can just buy a ton of these bricks and try to make your own thing. Which I'm in the process right now of making my own half-hour intern uh, logo MacBook cover. But people have made some of the coolest uh, Mac. MacBook covers with this thing, and uh, they're just awesome. It's just such a good idea. And now, brick tile that he's going to be coming out with is a kind of like a section of wallpaper, basically, that will allow you to just stick uh, these these kind of proprietary Legos onto your wall, which, uh, again, people have just done some of the most awesome things with this. So really great idea. We'll talk a lot about uh, Kickstarter in this episode. So if you've ever wondered about how to run a Kickstarter campaign and how to do it successfully... Uh, Brett has so much good advice as far as that's concerned. He talks about, you know, just why he uses Kickstarter to begin with. And then we will discuss all of the many lessons that Brett has learned on the road to success for BrickBook and any sort of kind of changes that he made now with the launch of BrickTile. So without further ado, here is BrickBook founder. Brett, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Hey, Blake. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, dude. So why don't we start out with the idea of BrickBook? and how this all came together. So, like, where were you, and when exactly did you have this idea? Um, yeah, so I was in um, an old apartment in Menlo Park, um, which is where I currently am now, and my uh, business partner slash roommate um, at the time, he, uh, 
him and his friend had just gotten done doing this design with with Legos. And I saw the design. I remember walking past them and they were working on their MacBooks afterwards. And the design was really cool. And I thought, you know, it's about the same size as the back of these MacBooks. And with MacBooks, you know, you walk into the coffee shop, you walk into the office and you flip it open and everybody sees sort of this gray canvas with an Apple logo on it, which is cool. But what if you could take those designs they just got done doing and bring them with you? Um, So that that's where the original idea came from. And we're like, okay, let's, we like this idea, you know, let's build one for us just to see what kind of reaction we get. And so we put a prototype together and I took it home for Christmas that year. And I was just blown away by the amount of comments I was getting on it. So when I went through airport security, everyone was asking, where'd you get that MacBook case? When I'd go out to a coffee shop, people would come up to me. Kids would be like walking in with their parents and they'd just stop and stare at it while I was hacking away. Um, So when I got back, we're like, okay, we got to try putting this thing on, you know, Kickstarter or something because the reaction has been really good. So that's that's how the start came for BrickBook. That's cool, man. So you kind of glossed over the, the prototype part. I, most of us don't know how, like, where to begin with something like that. So if you're like, oh, here's this idea that I have inside my head. How do I get it out of my head and into physical reality? Like, how did you guys make a prototype? Yeah, so the first one was actually really, really scrappy. Um, just enough to, like, shoot a video of it. We we went and got a standard, like, a MacBook case that we just found online, a, a cheap one. And then we went and got a base plate. And there's a lot of um, like maker shops and things that you can go to and just like rent space hourly. And they have laser cutters, 3D printers, all of those things. So we just went in and we took a plate and we used a laser cutter to cut it out of the dimensions. And we got a ton of glue and glued it on the back of this case and then clipped the case onto the back of the MacBook. And that was the original prototype for the Kickstarter campaign. That's cool, man. And the first one worked. Like It it wasn't like you put it together, and then you went to go put Legos on it, and it all just fall apart. Yeah, yeah. We tried to do a 3D-printed version, um, but what we found is you can't find a 3D printer. It's very difficult to find a 3D printer in the States that will print um, an object that size. So we found one in like the UK, and by the time it got shipped here, it was all warped. Um, because of the plastic they were using and it oh, just dude. it just didn't work at all. So that one was uh, a miserable failure for our first attempt. But but the second one, yeah, and it held up and we still have it um, occasionally, like keep it mounted on our wall. as like a reminder of the first one, you know, and and then all the iterations since then. Yeah, that's super cool, man. I love that. So talk about the decision to to go with Kickstarter and and putting it on Kickstarter and like what what all that kind of time frame was like. Uh, so Kickstarter, we've backed several projects personally. Um, there's a lot of companies out here that get their start that way. Uh, meaning, you know, Silicon Valley, the Bay area. And we decided on Kickstarter because we liked the brand. Um, we thought that the projects were really cool and they tended to get a lot of press. So we put it on there and at first, we were just kind of like kicking it around with friends and family for the first few days. I think we got a few thousand in pledges. Um, and then I decided to start emailing journalists and the, the process for that was going to these websites, um, wired gizmodo doing searches for like similar related products and then doing some Googling to find the journalist email addresses and then just targeting them. So 
I think we reached out to around 10 journalists and four or five of them um, responded. And wow, ended up that's writing articles. such a good response rate. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it does help to have a product that's kind of novel and that hits on some points that people are already interested in. Um, but, uh, but we were really happy with that. And, and Gizmodo was the first major one to cover it. And it just kind of exploded after that. Uh, Gizmodo had a huge following and Kickstarter provides analytics. Uh, so you can see where all the traffic and the pledges are coming from, which is really, really helpful. And then we got wired. And by the time the campaign ended 30 days later, I think there were over 100 different publishers around the world that had posted some sort of article about BrickBook. So oh, my really, God. Really- and it only took you reaching out to 10 people to ultimately get over 100 because everyone else was just writing because of the fact that people like Gizmodo had written about it. Exactly. Yeah, there's a there's a term I've heard called rolling thunder. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of what happened there. It's just like we got this big one and then it just started to roll out. I mean, of course, we we did a lot of social media. We went on and we were like finding people targeting, trying to continue to fan that flame. Um, but the big start of it was press, which uh, which you can't always predict. You know, I've had campaigns that I thought were going to be huge successes from a press standpoint that didn't really do that well. And then something like this um, catches you by surprise and you just got to take what you can get. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult to force things. It's interesting. So you mentioned that before getting any of the press uh, that you had, you know, a few thousand dollars uh, in in the first week or whatever it was. I think for a lot of people that would already sound like a huge, a huge success, like compared to the average Kickstarter. I'm sure. Um, is that just because of the fact that you live in Silicon Valley and you and your co-founder have a lot of wealthy friends, or like how did you <laughs> even get the few thousand dollars? Uh, one of the testaments, and I can say this um, even more now that we've done a second campaign, is Kickstarter. If they like your project, so I, I emailed. Um, part of the like some of the staff at kickstarter and i was like hey would you mind taking a look at this and they ended up making it a staff pick uh so it goes on a special list and there's a lot of discovery there so about 35 percent of that campaign pledges came from kickstarter driving traffic to our campaign which was great so if if you think about the fact that kickstarter takes five percent um plus you know the credit card fees for running your campaign and they drive over 30% of the traffic to it, at least in our cases, uh, it's a really, really good deal to list it on Kickstarter just from the press alone. Yeah, no kidding. If you happen to get featured like that, I mean, what the, the chances have got to be pretty slim getting featured like that. Yeah, I don't know the exact, um, the exact statistics on it, but in both cases, I've kind of reached out to them and they have their own method for the selecting process. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who do the same thing. Um, but but I know for a fact that they make those decisions based on like how how high of quality your campaign is. So having like a really good video that's compelling, having really nice, clear images and not filling your campaign page with like a bunch of badges and banners and third party like backlinks and stuff. Um, so what was your exact goal with your kickstarter campaign and what kind of what monetary amount did you end up hitting and then what were you able to do because of the money that you brought in uh so we did some early estimates before the campaign to to kind of decide what we should go for 
and we decided on thirty thousand uh, dollars. We thought that the tooling would cost around thirty thousand dollars, and it would kind of be our break-even point. Um, and then after the campaign was done, I think we hit around ninety-two, ninety-three thousand. So it was about three hundred percent. Wow. But the tooling was actually really, really expensive. Um, we had four different models, and the tooling, you know, was around five to ten thousand dollars a piece. So if we would have hit our original goal and only that, um, we would have had to reach into our own savings <laughs> to do it. So we ended up having to do that a little bit anyway, just to make sure the orders got out on time um, and hit before the holidays. So advice on that would be anytime you're looking at doing that campaign, you can guess and you can estimate and you can put like worst case scenarios in there. But I would double the amount of time it's going to take. <laughs> double your worst case scenario. <laughs> double your worst case scenario, double your budget, double the time for delivery. Um, and that'll at least give you a little bit of buffer room. And then you can still pinch pennies, which I highly recommend. I mean, I've seen some Kickstarter campaigns that have raised millions of dollars and just blown all of it and not even gotten the product out because when you get that amount of money dumped into your bank account, it'd be very easy. I could, you know, I could assume to just be like, Oh, you know, there's so much, it'll never be gone. It'll never be gone. And then it's gone. So you just have to be really careful. Silicon Valley mentality. Totally, man. (laughs) That's right. So you mentioned the, the different toolings that you needed to make these different MacBook covers. Um, once you had those toolings, are, are you then able to make these in-house? So is that the goal? Like, okay, we purchase these toolings and then we can just keep on making these over and over again? Or do you purchase the toolings, but then they are housed somewhere else and they get made abroad? Like, what, what exactly is the process? Yeah, so we, luckily, um, I have a really, a really good friend that worked with a company in China to manufacture products for, for their business. And so we had a referral there, and uh, we started working with them. All the tooling and manufacturing for the product is done in China. Um, the packaging is is made outside of China, and some of our other things. All and everything is shipped to a warehouse in Southern California, and then from there it's kind of assembled and then packaged to be shipped out to our customers. Why Southern California, not up here where where you're at? Um, so we had, uh, we had a friendly there too, that had a warehouse space that we're kind of, um, subleasing part of that space. And it makes it, uh, it makes it really, really easy. There's, there's ports down there. So when we have everything shipped in by sea, it's, it's only about 40 minutes outside of Los Angeles. Um, and the, the number one state for us is California. So it's things, it's, it's cheaper to ship things, uh, here in California than it is anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, man, what a what a good lesson in uh, in networking. I the actually the episode that was just most recently released of Half Hour Intern uh, as of us doing this interview right now is with a sports photographer, and I asked him about like who he likes to kind of spend time with to up his chops and to develop skills and stuff like that. Then he said that he actually doesn't really like spending time with other photographers. He likes to network with other people. Because of like, just you never know what sort of opportunity can come up when you're networking with people um, that are in totally different fields than you. And it's funny hearing you talk about, oh, yeah, I just had this connection for this China thing. Oh, yeah, I just had this connection for this Southern California warehouse. <laughs> and uh, it's just such a good lesson in, in not, uh, not being myopic in terms of networking within your own industry, you know, like in just, uh, yeah, talking to everyone. 
Yeah, I found it helps if you're if you're genuinely interested in in people. Um, living living out here is is very humbling. There's a lot of a lot of smart people, and I, I try to you know put myself into rooms where I'm the the least intelligent person, so you can kind of continue to grow. But one thing that really does help is when you have those conversations and you're you're genuinely interested in the people and what they do. It allows you to kind of dive deeper into those topics. And then a lot of times you will find some serendipity, you know, you will find some connections that eventually um, down the road, when you realize that you need a warehouse, you'll remember, hey, I talked to that guy who had that warehouse, you know, uh, a year ago, and we were talking about this and we connected and now you can kind of reach back out. Um, but unless you unless you take the time to get to know people and what they do, uh, it's really, really difficult to find those opportunities. Totally. And what you just made me think of that's so great about that sort of networking and that genuine sort of interest that you're displaying um, is that it, it, it that it, it I don't know, it, it allows that relationship to grow organically to the point that you would that they would ultimately be able to help you out one day. Like if that guy that you met that had the warehouse if you needed a warehouse right when you met him, it's really going to change the way that your conversations are going and, and not for the better, you know? Um, <laughs> so it's kind of good to to meet people when you don't need them, when, like when there's no help that they can offer you. Well, we've all had those, we've all met those people before, right? That are like very transactional in how they approach a conversation where it's like, okay, let me open this up test the water, see if there's something I can get from you. If not in the conversation early, if so, you know, come on like a used car salesman. <laughs> um, and, and no one likes that feeling. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I think even if, even if there is something and you see that opportunity early, if you can find a way to, to demonstrate value to the person that you're talking with first, then that's, that's often a better approach anyway. Yeah, totally, man. So, Brett, I want to ask you later about like your your big advice throughout everything that has taken place um, since starting. By the way, do you call your company Brick? Do you call it Brick Book? Like, what do you call it now that you're having another product come out? Yeah, so we're going to be shifting the brand to Brick, and that's why you're going to start to see Brick Book, Brick Tile, Brick next year's campaign that I can't talk about yet. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, but uh, but we do have the the company was officially called Jolt Team. And my business partner and I have had a few startups prior to this that were more around, you know, tech websites, software. Um, and so we incorporated as that. Eventually, we'll get we're going to be shifting things around a little bit. Um, but right now, Brick is the brand, and that's B R I K. Okay, cool. So later on, I'll be asking you about like just your overall lessons that you've learned with Brick. But let's first just touch really quickly on what do you think the biggest lesson is that you learned pre-launch? Like what's What's maybe like the biggest obstacle that you faced and what kind of lesson did you learn from that? Um, so during the Kickstarter campaign, um, don't be afraid to ask for things. Uh, like don't be afraid to get on the phone and call someone if you need to call someone. Don't be afraid to like reach out and email as many people as possible. And um, a lot of times people can be like hesitant or shocked and feel like you know nobody wants to be bothered by that stuff but a lot of times journalists are looking for cool news stories and if you believe in your product enough to kind of like dedicate your time and your life to it um, then you should believe in it enough to push it out to as many people as you can and talk about it 
Um, for the manufacturing side and like and getting the production done, once the campaign ends, the easy part is over, and now it's like the hard part. So we would have we we tried to reach out to um, people who had done Kickstarter campaigns and stuff before, but I wish we would have done more of that and like found out what software they were using to manage their fulfillment. Um, and those things because and who they were using for shipping, what kind of rates they were getting and just do a lot of that research up front because it'll save you a lot of time and money down the road um, by learning by, you know, learning from your own mistakes. Yeah, man, totally. It's like how they say measure twice, cut once. A lot of times it's more like measure like 15 times and then cut <laughs> once, you know? Yeah. And I I have a personality of just like sometimes like an eight-year-old child, you know, I kind of shoot from the hip sometimes and make decisions very quickly. Um, and that can come in handy. Um, but I would totally recommend spending a little bit more time up front figuring that stuff out. <laughs> oh man, it sounds like you and I are basically the exact same person. Brett. I, <laughs> it's like for every time that that has come in handy, it's uh, just like totally screwed me over about yeah. 10 more times. <laughs> Um, all right, dude. So let's talk about pricing BrickBook. I imagine that's got to be a very difficult thing when you are coming up with a product like this. Like how much are people going to pay for this? And regardless how much people will pay, how much should we charge? Just like what what is a sweet spot? How do you decide on something like that? Uh, for Kickstarter, we worked we worked backwards and we found out what it would cost to produce, what our break-even point would be. Um, and then we kind of priced Kickstarter to break even. Um, and then when we went to kind of release it on retail on our site and put it on Amazon, um, we looked at other cases um, and and kind of tried to find a f- price point that we thought was fair because we use really high quality plastic. Our packaging's nice um, and a point where people wouldn't just like completely scoff at it. So, so far, I mean... I think we'll probably continue to to do a few tests and and tweak it up and down, um, but we're pretty happy with the price point that we eventually settled on. Yeah, Did, were there ever any were were there ever any arguments between you and your other founder about like how this should be priced? Um, no, that's I guess that's one advantage of working like when you find someone that you have a really good working relationship with, um, and and David. Uh, my co-founder, he's just like uh, brilliant. He works at you know Facebook. He's an engineering manager there. Really, really smart guy. But more important in the company is like that that cultural fit. And so when you find someone that you work really, really um, well with, then you tend to see eye to eye on most things. And when you don't, you kind of just um, kind of talk through it. And and two you know reasonable people that have the same information tend to come to a uh, an agreement. <laughs> yeah, dude, I love that you just said that. And I feel like there's such a great analogy for relationships and marriages and stuff in there because I get so like, I have such a great relationship with my wife and we've been together for eight and a half years now. And I get so frustrated when I hear people say things like marriages work, man. Like, or, you know, like, you know, you're going to fight, right? You, I mean, you got to be fighting a lot, but you know, this person has your back. So it's okay. And I'm just like, what do you mean you know you're going to be fighting a lot? Like, what is this idea that we have about relationships that like, oh, it's it needs to be hard and it needs to be work. Otherwise, you're just kind of kidding yourself or whatever. And it's like, well, the same way that you just described a business relationships, all relationships can and should be that way. 
Um, otherwise, maybe you shouldn't really be in that relationship to begin with. Oh, I totally agree with you, Blake. Like, if I had to spend my time arguing with, you know, with David on this stuff, I we would be working backwards. Like, you, if if you're going to be fighting all the time, you might as well go solo because uh, otherwise you're gonna you're gonna waste a lot of time and mental energy. You know, when oh, you're an, when you're an entrepreneur and, and you know this, Blake, but um, there's there's like different types of it. Like, so there's like a physical energy when you when you go out for like a run. Um, you get a good workout and then there's your mental energy and those things are tied together at the end of the day. Like if you had a really stressful day, your body's exhausted too. You can't just isolate those. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. So yeah, support yourself, surround yourself with people that, uh, that you get along with. Uh, so it sounds kind of like everything just went really, really well for you. Is that, is that what actually happened? Uh, like, is that everything has just been like totally smooth sailing forever since you guys launched this? Or were there some sort of like hiccups and major hurdles along the way um, outside of just that uh, 3D printer that you guys ordered that didn't work out too well? I, I would love to uh, to sit here and, and paint that beautiful, that beautiful uh, picture for you. But unfortunately, it has not. I mean, it, it's gone relatively well for, for a new company, for a new startup. Um, I feel like we've been very like blessed throughout this process. However, it has not been easy. Um, I remember, so we found out that we were going to be, this was in November of last year, and we found out that uh, Vanity Fair was going to be featuring us in their ultimate gift guide for 2015, and that that issue would be coming out in about a month and a half. And so we had a few prototypes, um, but we didn't have like our the prototypes from our tooling. And our backers were starting to get a little frustrated because we were running behind schedule, and everybody wanted it out before you know the holiday season. So we didn't have time to do another run of prototypes. Uh, so and we were we were out of cash. Like we burned through our cash because we had to redo the tooling because we didn't know how to prototype properly. Like all these things that. Again, if we would have spoken with someone a little bit more in depth about the process, we could have saved ourselves a lot of time and money. So I remember um, it was right before like the Thanksgiving holiday, and we're driving down to LA to to test them all. So we we ordered thousands of these things. They're sitting there waiting in the warehouse for us. This is the last chance. Like we had never we had not gotten a prototype that that fit perfectly on the back of a MacBook yet and had bricks stick to it properly. So the entire company is sitting there on some pallets in the warehouse and the, and our complete future is sort of just like resting there. <laughs> and of course, like we're crazy nervous. We get down there at like 2 a.m. The warehouse is closed. We wake up the next morning. Uh, I remember walking into the warehouse, like cutting open the box and taking the first one out. And it looked beautiful. It was like a blue brick book and just like the color and the gloss and everything looked really nice. And so we take out the MacBooks and we're just like shaking, you know, because it's just such a high pressure moment. And we, we click it on and we click it on and it fits perfect. And then we get ready to do the bricks. Um, and I, we were extra nervous about this part because our last set of prototypes, which we had ordered earlier to try to get for Amazon for their AWS conference, the bricks just fell right off the brick books. Oh, um, shit. So... Yeah, so that was really, really stressful. So I go to put the first one on, and uh, and my co-founder's like, I can't, I can't stay here for this. So he <laughs> leaves the room, you know, like he's gone. 
And I, I grab a handful of yellow bricks and I start to put them on the brick book and they fit perfectly. Like the clutch power was clutch. Um, and so I started jumping up and down and one of the other ladies in the warehouse, she comes in, she's like jumping up and down happy. And then David comes back in and he's jumping up and down. We're all so excited because we finally have this product, which means we'll actually have, um, we'll have it for Christmas. We'll have it for our backers. Uh, the traffic from Vanity Fair will actually be able to purchase them. And it was a really, really exciting but stressful moment. I can't even imagine, dude, especially with the Vanity Fair thing. It's one thing for the people that have already backed you to just be irritated with you. But that's got to be just like, I, I feel like that's like a like a nightmare scenario. You know, it's <laughs> like it's like showing up to school like and you're in your underwear or something. The fact that you you get lucky enough to have this wonderful article written about you in Vanity Fair that all of these people, all these women are going to read like, oh, here's this cool new product that you can buy. Then they're going to go to look at it. And no, I, I actually can't buy it. There's there's none of this product to buy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, is um, we were out of time. We were out of cash. So if it didn't fit, I mean, I, I honestly don't know what we would have done. So it was a. Uh... It was a stressful time, and of course, we ran into our you know fair share of shipping issues too. We were using um, USPS for international shipment, and a lot of packages got lost, and so um, things that we've learned. But it has not been easy. I mean, we we've spent we put in probably ten to fourteen hour days most days, and just kind of keep cranking and cranking and cranking. Um, it, it was not a walk in the park, but from the outside, sometimes I feel like it looks that way because you see the press and, and things and it makes it seem a lot easier than it actually is. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so I have some questions surrounding Lego, like as in the company Lego and stuff like that. So, uh, most of them being like, have you had any sort of good contact or bad contact with them? Have they reached out to you at all? Um, no, we haven't, we haven't heard anything from, from Lego. We try really, really hard to, um, to not like mimic their marketing or their brands. Uh, our product is compatible with Lego, but where we've seen companies, so we did a lot of research on the patents. A lot of Lego's, um, utility patents expired in the late eighties, which is why you started to see like mega block and Creo and some of these others hit the market. And you can go on a sites like ThinkGeek and see the build-on brick mug. And, and Lego still has a lot of patents around their minifigures um, as well. So, so we, try to, we try to stay away from that. You'll never see like Lego minifigures in any of our product shots and, um, and stuff. Yeah, that's probably for the best. I feel like I, so it, it sounds like you've done a lot of research. I feel like I would be so nervous about any sort of like patent infringement issue or like lawyers hitting you up because it's like Lego is such a big company. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it sounds like from the research that you did that there's kind of nothing that they could even really, um, like no problem that they could have with you guys. Yeah, I mean, we hope not. <laughs> we just keep, uh, <laughs> we keep pushing forward. We, I mean, the thing is we love we love Lego. Um, we love the company. We love the product. Their their quality control and like, it's it's top notch. And they've done such a good job building a powerful brand. I think for the first time last year they were in the top 100 brands, um, which is which is super impressive. They beat out uh, Mattel to be the top toy company in the world. Wow! And so. They're, they're doing a lot of things right over there. And if if Lego had already built the products um, 
that like Lego had Lego teamed up with Belkin to do like an iPhone and an iPad case. So those exist um, and they're out there in the world and people can go buy them. And we don't have an, you know, an intent to, to get into that market because they've already done that. If Lego would have built a, a MacBook case, we wouldn't have built one because it would have already existed. But we built something that uh, that didn't exist yet that we wanted it. So uh, that was now, kind of the incentive behind it. And then are you now patent protected? Like, does it go the other way around now? Like, if they wanted to make something for a MacBook, would that infringe on you guys now? Um, yeah, yeah. We have design patents uh, for the BrickBook case now. So uh, theoretically, uh, we we could, but... You know, hopefully that that never comes up. I think, <laughs> totally, that'd be a very scary proposition to go toe to toe with uh, Lego. Yeah, they they try to stay in their core business. I mean, part of their restructuring plan. There's this great book. Um, I think it's called Brick by Brick, and it talks about Lego in the early '90s and how they almost went bankrupt and how they kind of just like went and they were they were building products that you could put together within a few clicks trying to kind of compete with action figure companies and they went back to basics and they said we don't need so many different unique pieces like the whole beauty of the lego platform is that everything works together and kits work together and when you try to make each one isolated and proprietary it kind of kills the whole thing so my my kind of like um comeback to this statement is that lego um, tries to stay in their core business and do what they do really, really well. So I don't anticipate them trying to kind of come over and start building laptop cases because it it's such a small for, for us. It's a it's a large business, but for them, um, it's it would be such a small part of it and, and a distraction in my in my opinion. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, man, interesting. So let's uh, let's move on a bit here. So we already talked about the press that you got from Vanity Fair quite a while ago. Um, which I must have just been so awesome. And we talked about Gizmodo and some of the other things that happened when you were still only on Kickstarter. So now, kind of one of the more recent super awesome things that happened to you has been getting featured in O Magazine, which is Oprah's magazine, which is like the coolest freaking thing ever. Like I, I, It's like Oprah is basically like one of the top three people on the planet Earth. You know, like if we had like aliens come to planet Earth, I feel like Oprah has to be one of the top three people that we would put forward to to be our ambassador, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Like talk about getting featured in O Magazine and how that all went down and what that experience has been like for you. Uh, so let's see. It was several months ago. This probably April, um, maybe prior to that. Uh, it was the May issue. And so we, they reached out to us several months prior to that, and we're looking at doing sort of a social media-themed uh, issue of the magazine. And because BrickBook can kind of be, I mean, it is it does have that tech element, so that would fall into play, but it also has uh, the ability to kind of make it whatever you want it to be. So one of the things that we thought would be really, really cool to send to them as a demo was uh, was like an emoji emoji brick book so it's got maybe some of the more popular emojis on like a blue brick book and we sent that to them along with a few other kind of custom ones we had done and the feedback we got was incredible um the review team because they review products very carefully before putting them in into their magazine uh which we really like 
And the feedback we got was just like they were blown away with it. And so after hearing that, we were like much more confident, at least in like telling friends and family that we have this opportunity coming up. Um, and then it, yeah, and then it went live in May and we saw like a ton of traffic from it. And, and, um, and then we had other people reaching out, like other magazines, publications. Uh, it adds this level of credibility to your to your product that may or may not, you know, exist prior. I love it. That's so cool, man. It's it's just it's so great um, being somebody uh, like also doing sort of an entrepreneurial thing. It's like you need you need these things to happen with some sort of regularity, like, like getting some sort of good news or some whatever um, to just kind of like refill your emotional tank you know and make you think again that everything's okay and that you haven't just like plateaued or something you know and uh i just can't imagine what that's like it's like there you never know when something like that is going to happen tomorrow you know it's like Mm -hmm. the day before you get hit up by o magazine saying like oh maybe like i think we might want to have you in the magazine it's like you could have been having like the worst day you know and you're just all like down on your luck and oh i don't know like it seems like things might be slowing down or this or that and then all of a sudden you get contacted by O Magazine. It's like, oh, all right, like everything's going to be okay. Yeah, and, and to, to that point, um, I'm really, really glad you mentioned that because this is the difference um, I find from working for another company or working for a larger company and working for yourself. Um, and, and this is how I describe it to people. Like when I wake up in the morning, I you know, roll over and I check my phone and I go through my email. Like that's the first thing I do. And every morning, there's an opportunity that I get an email that could change my life, right? And when working for another company, like you can get, you can make a deal, like you can, uh, you can get that project approved or things can go well and you might get like a salary bump or may, might get a promotion, but you're not going to get this purchase order for your business for you know, tens of thousands of dollars and you just wake up and all of a sudden everything's different. Um, and, and having that opportunity and like that excitement makes it worth all of the, the pain and the, the negative emails you could potentially face. <laughs> yeah. Or the days you roll over in the morning, you're like, I wonder what I got today. And it's just like empty mailbox. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, dude, you're, uh, you really hit the nail on the head. That's so true. Um, so, dude, let's talk about your new project, which sounds just like such a phenomenal idea um, called Brick Tile. And um, you put this one up on Indiegogo and the campaign already is in six figures. It said that you're at like 620 percent of your goal or something like that. So, like, how different was your approach going into fundraising for this product how different was your confidence level going into the fundraising for this product and then how different have the results been from this versus when you did the brick book campaign uh yeah so really 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 excited for this project and it was really difficult to kind of like hold back from launching this a while ago um but our, our model now is we're going to kind of try to launch a new product every year. So we just sort of needed to wait. Very early on with BrickBook, um, we realized that people were going to want a, lar- a larger canvas. So we started selling those one-by-one bricks. We have a website component where people can go on and do their own pixel art and share it with the community or buy the bricks necessary to recreate those designs. Um, but uh, the, the canvas on the back of a MacBook's great. But people are going to want to do an entire wall. They're going to want to do scenes. They're going to want to do their favorite characters. 
And, uh, and so we wanted to build a product for that. We actually launched it on Kickstarter. Indiegogo is it's on there now because um, we're taking a second set of of pre-orders after the campaign ended. But just to kind of kind of clarify that, uh, the good news is we had an existing customer base not only from the first set of Kickstarter backers, but also all the Brickbook customers since we launched. Yeah. Uh, so that cold start, you don't really have to worry about that anymore if you're launching a product that's in the same space as your previous one. Uh, this time. We went to raise thirty thousand again. Um, I was down in LA doing some stuff at the warehouse. I think we launched a campaign at like four a.m. And then by the time I got up at eight thirty nine o'clock, we had already done like eight or ten thousand because I sent. Yeah, I'd sent an email out uh, right after the campaign launched, so when everyone woke up in the morning, they would see that we had this new product on Kickstarter. Um, and that's the other thing with Kickstarter is your your backers um, can be really, really loyal, but it's important to to kind of treat them right. If we wouldn't have delivered our first campaign um, or we would have delivered a product that had really poor quality, then we would have taken this great thing and just kind of squandered it. I, I'd like to know about your decision process to do Kickstarter again the second time versus... Mm-hmm just dipping into your savings or taking out a loan or something to do the second product is part of that. Um, it's almost it, like you said, like you almost get this opportunity at like a good free press source. If it happens to take off on Kickstarter. Yeah, that's uh that's one of the primary reasons for it. I like the culture of Kickstarter. Like I like the idea that, you have this community and they're helping you and you're giving them a product they really want and you have this dialogue throughout the whole process and can show the the process part of it so they can learn more about manufacturing and developing. I think that's really, really cool and unique and it gives you an opportunity to build a relationship with them for life uh, much more than them just ordering a brick book off Amazon would do. Wow, that is such a good point. And another thing that that just made me think of is also the level of accountability that there is for you then, um, like to to keep making this thing the best. And if there's, mm-hmm. any, if there's any hiccups in the development process, um, I mean, y- you mentioned the, the hiccups that you guys had with the first brick book, and that's very um, nerve wracking. And you could look at that as like a negative that it's nerve wracking because, oh, crap, like we these people are starting to get on us because we told them that we would fulfill these orders and we haven't fulfilled them yet. Um, but that's really more of a positive than a negative, you know, that like that you have this like constant fire under you because you have this commitment to the people that are supporting you through Kickstarter versus if you took a loan out from a bank or something, you don't have any commitment to that bank mm-hmm. and your only commitment is to yourself, you know. Um, it's kind of good to have accountability to a large group of people. Yeah, and, and the fact that they they care enough to hassle you for it, right? Like they want they want the product. And what's that saying? Um, the opposite of love is not hate; it's indifference. So if if they were completely indifferent, if they didn't care when they got it or completely forgot about it, then I think that would be a, a bad sign. But but being hassled and being accountable to thousands of people to release your product, I agree with you, Blake. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, totally, man. Um, so, Brett, tell us what the best thing is that has happened to you through this whole process. Oh, man. Um, waking up every morning excited to 
build a company like if you had free time what would you be doing i would i get to do that every day i get to work on something i love every day um and that that changes everything it changes your mood it changes like the way you schedule things um and that is really really satisfying i i like the um the oprah thing was very very cool uh we have some other press like in the works right now that that's going to be amazing um hopefully you know later this year early next year and and being able to be on shows like this honestly is great too and i i listened to your show um i listened to several podcasts about like entrepreneurship and making ideas happen and i just love that like that culture that energy uh, to, so to be able to kind of like help other entrepreneurs i mean we have a long way to go still to, to make this a like a huge successful company but we have learned some things along the way and i love being able to to help uh, prevent other people from like making some of those same mistakes totally man well uh i feel like you just transitioned this for me perfectly so thank you for that uh, so for the last question i just wanted to ask you if you could give people some advice like what would be the biggest lesson that you feel like you learned through this entire process that you've been through um things take time and most of the time when people fail I think it's because they give up too early. So my advice would just be just like stick with it um, and keep pushing. Try not to get discouraged. Uh, be around people who uh, who can help support you uh, emotionally and that aren't just like like jealous and trying to shoot down your ideas and and toxic because um, those people are out there too. And just just keep pushing. Hey man, dude, great advice. Uh, Brett, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you for the advice and your stories. Everything was so great. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Blake. This has been great. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode with Brett. Don't forget that today is probably your last day possible to enter the Half Hour Intern Contest on iTunes. The contest ends on Wednesday, September 21st. And that evening, I will be drawing three names to win three really cool camping-related prizes. And then I will be drawing a fourth name um, based off of the most creative or the most fun review. So head on over to iTunes and leave a review for Half Hour Intern, and you will be entered into that contest. Thanks so much for listening to the show.